by episode, storyline by storyline, character by character, as we break down the making of your favorite zip code with your host, Charles <laughs> Rose. Did I say that? Harry Mullen. thing about the, the, the real person, and we go, what? We're getting rid of this guy. Pete Ferrero. I'm feeling wonderful. <laughs> Kathleen looks crush, TV crushworthy. Like so many special guests. And all your questions, live on the Beverly Hills 90210 Show. Oh, yeah. Okay, here we are on the Beverly Hills 90210 show again. I'm excited this week. We are really going in the Wayback Machine because we're going all the way back to season one. So uh, I'm super stoked for this. Uh, before we say hello to our regular usual suspects, Jessica Shaw is sitting in here with us this week. How are you, Jessica? How's everything been? I'm good. And thank you, Pete, because I feel like I stalk you all the time and say, when can I come back on? When can I come back on? Because this show is such a blast um so thank you for having me it's always good to having you and i will tell you that chuck said uh this week i was sitting outside he said we need jessica shaw this week so uh, <laughs> that was you know about all this you were in the I... uh, library in columbia right i mean so this that's right <laughs> you are so, absolutely you right so can you hear me singing it had to be you you know <laughs> always yes yes i could <laughs> That kind of what happened, how that played out. All right. I want to give Melanie an opportunity to talk about what's going on in her world. She's got another hunt coming up. Yes. Uh, she's going to hunt for Lucinda Nichols. Just Tell me about the holiday hunt, Melanie. What do, what do you have going on? Well, uh, starting next week, December 17th through the 21st, we're allowing uh, Beverly Hills 90210 fans to participate in the virtual scavenger hunt. It's full of fun, trivia, photo, and video challenges, um, all for a chance to win prizes. We've got over $600 in prizes, and uh, it's, it's really fun. We had a great time in our last one, and you can register now at 90210hunts.com. All right, Melanie, thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that. I'm going to remove you and say goodbye. And we will right. catch Bye, you guys. Bye, Bye, Melanie. All right, this should be a lot of fun. Uh, also want to announce that we have a Patreon now. Sorry, we have to get all this stuff done up at the front of the show now. Um, we Larry and I got a chance to talk to Dr. Greg, right, <laughs> from... from uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Six, which was very quite exciting. Quite an accomplished guy. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. It was incredible. He's a producer. He produced Big Brother. He produced Celebrity Apprentice, you know. With, with he invented the you game. Know who? He, invents yeah. the ga he invents the games. He's a game inventor. Yeah, exactly. Well, here's a clip oh. of that, and then when we come back, we're going to hop into this. And like three, four years after that, I was standing there with Jenny Garth on set one day before we had this kissing scene when Tara is watching us from the, the kitchen or yeah. from the from the yeah. window. And, and I said, I just have to tell you this, you know, four or five years ago, whatever it was, I was watching on TV on a black and white TV in Pittsburgh. And this is the reason I came out here. And here I am, like playing your boyfriend. It was the most surreal. And I tell that story all the time. And it's a true story. I mean, it's just one of those stories. It's just like, what are the odds? And holy crap. And and but anyway and there i was on the yeah. set and um it was just incredible i felt like i stepped through the tv 
Yes, yeah, so head over to patreon.com slash Beverly Hills 90210 show. Uh, lots of really good content. Chuck, we watched one-on-one this week, which was one of the episodes uh, that we were talked about. We're going to talk about. Um, yeah. And then we're also doing a big 12 days of Christmas promotion. We'll talk about that at the end. Of the show. That should be uh, a lot of fun because we do have a big Christmas show coming up. All right, Chuck, let's get into this, man. Let's talk about the first six episodes. And I should I should note, when we talk about the first six, you, you refer to the first six as actually the green room being where you first came into the mix of this of the show. So you're not necessarily referring to the pilot as the first six. No, no, no. The pilot was a, was, was a whole different other enterprise. And um, it was really not what we, we started in scratch. You know, I've been, because of the Patreon, because of the 12 days of Christmas, I've been hunting files. And I found this one. That is, uh, let's see, can I, you know, it's hard. Call sheet, call sheet. It's a call, call sheet. sheet. From day one. Wow. Oh my God, you day better read one, that. Day one out of seven. Chuck, could and you read the uh, the cast list in the order? Because this is the most important thing for a cast. What Absolutely. number you are on the, on the cast who's list. Who's before you <laughs> and who's after Brandon you? I would first and maybe Shannon second, but I could be wrong. Shannon could be first. Well, let's, uh, no, 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 Jay, it would be, you got one, two, right. Good. But let's understand that they're the only ones whose names are typed in. Everybody else has been written in, and that includes wow, Jenny Garth. That's amazing. Stuff, Jenny Garth, uh, Brian uh, Green, um, Doug Emerson, Ian Zeering. It's in that order. But um, he's seven and eight, so you know that. Andrea Zuckerman's not in these scenes. She's probably in the middle there. And I don't know quite where the parents would be, too. They'd be in there. Um, Luke was more in the guest star group, you wow. know, because it goes all the yeah. way up. Oh, he Luke had Perry's never number 10. Luke number Perry's 10. number 10. Handwritten in. And he didn't work A that Perfect day. 10. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't. But he wasn't. Yeah, he wouldn't have. Well, yeah, he would have been. Yeah. A couple of episodes right. in, he would have been. So we got him. stuff like this going through that'll be fun and exciting to see. But um, so that was the first. And, and it's interesting about that day. And I think that it will. Um, it's what I remember most about that episode, The Green Room. Um, and it overshadowed everything else about it. Which was that. All I heard all effing day, we're behind, we're behind, as if I could, I'm, I'm sitting in, you know, an office that is just like I've been in like two days and, and they're out in Cabrillo Beach and, you know, we're, we're drowning trying to get the next one out and we're behind, we're behind, we're behind and God bless the director who was a friend of mine named Michael Uno and that's why I brought him in. He shot it in a one He didn't do coverage. And we finished five minutes early. And they couldn't yell at me for the first day of shooting. We made, we shot everything. And we did not go into overtime. What was the mandate when you came so in? I, that, of- was the, that was the most important thing. That kind of settled my, my whole experience on the show. Had we gone over the first day and gone over badly, who knows? So that shows you that already from day one, I was already a battered soldier, guys. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Jessica, you asked the question. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I was curious what when you came in, what was the mandate of Chuck? We we need to get from here we are to this point. 
Well, that's a real interesting question. And <laughs> Mr. Spelling was very clear on it. And I, and I always remember this and give him a lot of credit for it. Um, this was a year a lot of people were going youth programming and, and the darling of, um, of, of uh, you know, was not us at Fox. It was Parker Lewis by, by far. That was yeah. the real reflection of what he the network was, was all about. Yeah. And, and, um, and we, you know, with that, and there was whole high over at ABC and there was Ferris Bueller and there was the Fresh Prince and, oh yeah, and then Spelling's making a show. So it was, so what he did was he plucked somebody out who wrote Movies of the Week and Social Drama, who had some but very limited series experience and said, I want to deal with teen issues. He went back and, and, and this is one of the things I wanted to say, and I wanted to get your feelings about this, Larry, because it, it, you know I started really thinking about what company did I go visit on the first day that I was there? What was the vibe that was there? And then when I first showed up to work those first days without a staff, what was the vibe? And the dominant one was sadness. Mm. I mean, this had been a mighty company with, with departments of production and wardrobe and seven, eight shows on the air. And they are coming off a year of nothing. And all those people had been laid off. There had been a reversal in the stock market. And to add injury, uh, no, insult to injury with this TV show, a, a music video company had been given really more creative leeway on the making of the pilot and theoretically the making of the series than the venerated Aaron Spelling and it and Duke Vincent. And Duke, who I didn't meet to immediately, his feeling was that, but also anger. He, you know, what the hell is this guy sitting over there and he's running a show? He doesn't know what he's doing. And he was not 100% wrong, but it was... That was how the spelling universe felt on those first days. They were, and because they were in financial uh, upheaval, that they, the license fee was only what Fox would pay. Plus, fortunately for 90210, um, it did have, what, what did still remain intact for the spelling organization, thanks to CAA, was its own distribution company called World Vision. And so England came in and Canada came in, Australia came in. They had points of, of, uh, of sale. And without that additional revenue coming in, I, we, would, we would not have even been able to go out uh, one day or build one thing. You know, it would have been really, really even more low budget. And we were the lowest license fee mm. uh, in TV. And the other thing just to say about that, then experience of being the lowest license fee and what happened is, and, and, and how really should have started this was the idea that, you know, I always make a joke because I, at this point, everything, I try to do that. Um, but, uh, you know, well, why did I get, um, you know, asked to um, do the show? Well, one is because I went to Beverly Hills High School and I grew up in Beverly Hills. Number two, I was available. And number three, no one else wanted to do it. <laughs> and that's kind of a funny, okay line at first. But the fact is what it really represents. And this is what I realized, Larry, they spent five weeks hashing out how they were going to do this between the companies and this. They were so far behind 
that. Mm. And there were so many other pe people that came and left or whatever else. And the, who was really in charge and and what auspices and oh, is he still making TV? Whatever it was, you know, they didn't want in. And none of the other age, you know, the, the ICMs of the A world and the William Morris weren't going to go uh, help a, a CAA package that had largely excluded them for, mm. you know, years. Mm. So, um, you know, but I, I always really do admire that Aaron was able to give us a way to go forward. But if you think that Fox, and I do, I think Fox was really successful branding their network as around Parker, around things. They were, and, and married with children, of course, for sure. already on the air at this point. So they were, you know, a little bit of in your face and attitude and, and going for young men. And we were doing a family, a transplanted family show set in Beverly Hills. They also you had know, women, we were, women in we prison. We were off-brand from the moment we started, you know. Women in prison. Chuck, they also had women in prison at, at that time, too. Well, you know, they used to fight with me about my content, and my lead-in was at eight o'clock, and my lead-in at seven thirty was studs. What are you telling me? God, but I think it's interesting. Here's another kind of little Patroni thing. Maybe a twelfth day of Christmas, we can get a copy. We can get a signature here. Sure. I think. Let's see. Can you see? Well, you see that Fox logo over there on the side? Yeah, sort of. What is it? Right there's a Fox little Fox logo there. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's the Fox. It says inner office memo. And it's Dan McDermott uh, telling Chernin and the guys under him about the class of Beverly Hills. And this is the 10 point memo on the show coming out of research. So this is what wow. the mandate was from the um, Diller regime. And that was, the show is about them. And, and so in that context, think about the first six, okay? which is, again, as the green room, every uh, dream has its price tag, one-on-one, -on -one, first, first time. time, higher education, and uh, perfect mom. Those were right. the first six. These were the marching orders from the network we were given. Show is about emotion. This is a family show, not a teenage show. Must have character jeopardy. Sense that these kids could fuck up their lives and that these parents are at a crossroads. Which is, you wonder, didn't you feel that? After a while, a couple of them, I thought they were going to get divorced, you know, after <laughs> Cindy was so pissed off about being Boy. in Beverly Hills, you know? Yeah. Written that way, but also... You didn't want a cleaning lady. <laughs> no, she's no, no, no. And, of course, that's mm. the most Beverly Hills thing I brought to this. Nonetheless. <laughs> <But laughs> Um, uh, stories must be provocative and promotable. Show must be realistic and believable. Must have, and this is the worst of them all. This is the this is the one I disregarded. Must have an adult story in every episode. But no, I don't think so. We'll just have adults in the episodes, not necessarily a story. Show must be relevant to families and teenage everywhere, not just Beverly Hills, which we know. Larry, I can see the look on Larry's face going, no, no, it's actually the opposite you want, exactly. right, guys? Exactly. <laughs> um, it, I think it that's does. That's what you were selling. And more, and a couple other points, too. Yeah. You know, I wanted to say one thing, because uh, one of the fans, Peter Goldsworthy from Australia, oh, I know him. Melbourne, yes, yes, I said to me, he said, oh, in those episodes, there's the, the line that defines the whole series, which hmm. he said was, 
Welcome to paradise, man. Welcome to your dreams come true. Peter Goldberg, you wrote that in the and chat. He said that's some, okay, he said that sums up the whole series, and I thought that was kind of cool. So I just want to make sure I got that in. Yeah. Not necessarily yeah, context, and you know, but. it was interesting, too, because, you know, as someone, as is going to sound, you know, really condescending and boomer, and I don't mean it to, but I did grow up when the beach was at its prime. And right. while we were making this show, there were gangs on the beach, and the water was polluted. So it's hard for me to really get behind the physical sale of the, you know, California dream. It really right. had the bay had to be cleaned up, and fortunately, it was by some good people. Heal the bay out here. What well, was the difference in in shooting? I'm sorry, Pete. Go ahead. No, I, I was just going to ask. You saw the pilot, Chuck, right? You, they, the first thing that they send you is the pilot. Mm -hmm. What was your reaction to it when you saw that? Well, I was a, uh, at the time, I was a, a writer-producer of Northern Exposure. Uh, I was the only writer-producer on staff. My bosses, very talented, Josh Brand and John Falsey, were in, uh, were in Washington the whole time making the show. And I was doing a page one rewrite, my favorite script of all. It was, it was hard to try to get the tone. So I'll be honest now. Here's something I never shared before. I started smoking pot in the morning to be writing this fucking this fucking show. And, and I did that all day and got to that point. And then they send this over. And I got to go back. I'm not finishing it. It's two days to go. And I start to look at the two-hour version of the class of Beverly Hills, and I fall asleep. And when I wake up, I probably fell asleep after about 20 minutes. And then when I wake up, I got the choice. Go watch it again or do the work that you're being paid to do. So that's what I did, and I passed on the show. And and what happened um, is that Mr. Spelling um, wanted to be able to at least have me hear what his uh, vision was, how to do the show, what he wanted to do. And I would get to have a meeting with the legend. And that's how I looked at it. I didn't really expect that I would leave Northern Exposure for a spelling show. Yes, but you, and all that implied, because that was a stigma, as we all know. Yeah, and the uh, it was, yes. And the other thing, of course, was, is that Northern Exposure was a low-budget uh, summer show. And this was that, plus a little bit more foreign in spelling. And he, um, Mr. Spelling, was much more generous than the people who made the other. So there was incentive for me to look at the new 90-minute one, which is the one that we uh, pretty much was aired. Uh, James Eckhouse hadn't been ca cast yet to replace the father who was in it, but it was pretty much it. And, uh, <clears throat> and the interesting thing about it, and what really sold me is not in the version that even I saw of the one that aired, because I guess they didn't license the song. How they ended it in the reel that they showed out to sell it was they <clears throat> went back, took all the best moments, visuals of the uh, episode, but they played it against the B-52s singing Rome Around the World. And it's a real cute, peppy song. Had nothing to do with the show that you were just <laughs> seeing, but we got to see all of the kids against it. 
and I remember thinking there was one thing with Jenny Garth wearing some bicycle shorts, and I went, that, God, that's cute. That's a good outfit, Troy. And a couple of Jason, I went, you know, I kind of like these characters, even though it was more than the sum of its parts. Go ahead, Jessica. So, what were you going to ask? I was just curious for Chuck and Larry just about what what it was like filming. We got to see the you know in the first six we got to see scenes set at the beach, and you get to see Dylan on a surfboard and Brandon just like wiping out in the waves because he's 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 from Minnesota. He's landlocked. He's you know he's he he only knows lakes, not ocean. Right. And what the difference was between shooting at the beach at a, at a beach in season one versus later in the show when you've got the beach club and Brandon's working and there's you know so much there. And there must have been hysteria during those days. Sure. That's good. Yeah. Good question. Well, really, in the beginning, you know, because we were a non-union show, um, it, it, it is, it's not harsh because some of these people, I mean, I think our DP man who shot David Geddes, the first episodes, was um, shot some of the most beautiful footage we did the whole time. But, uh, and there were other, some really other talented people at that point, but by and large, the crew was pretty much glorified AFI. This was non-union. This was were, were people who were available right at that moment, and it was and and I want to bring that up because this really also really put us behind the eight ball and had a lot to do with the first six. And Larry will remember this time is that it was the 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 idea that doing a non-union show for a broadcast network in Los Angeles, the home of the International Alliance Television Studio Engineers was, um, you know, a, a declaration of war. You're looking over your shoulder. And, and why is because this was, you know, early 1990 when they're making the pilot and we had just come off a very contentious labor strike between the Writers Guild and management. And Barry Diller was the leader of management in that strike. He and Jeffrey Katzenberg, you know, huge, towering figures. And he was he was pissed off, pissed off at all creative community for for you know causing an interruption in the business flow and the launch of that. So you, you know, you had that element not wanting to be you know, and, and daring. And you also, and you also, is a company owned by Rupert Murdoch. Mm. And Duke Vincent also was a, you know, very much an independent right to work kind of guy in his break heart. The union. You know, and so we're going to break the union and we're going to do it this way with this crew, which they were not able. If, if I, if, if Larry would write a script or I would write a script today and we would, could, people would budget it out and say, it's going to take you 11 hours to shoot this. This is the goal. This is what we need. Because we don't want to go over 12 hours, God forbid. Um, you would, um, you you could budget that out. But this crew had no ability to do that. And mm -hmm. we were lucky to have them come in just under 14 hours. And to be able to make, this is really inside baseball and budget, and I'm sorry, fans, mm -hmm. but it's interesting. Larry hasn't heard some of this stuff, I don't, I don't think, that we were able <clears throat> at that point to basically say, look, this is what it costs, and you won't get in trouble, and we can pay the union 
the non-union guys and they'll be very happy. And indeed, it was rejected. And two days into the show, we get closed down. And there we are. Now, they gave us some time to organize in this and talk to the all the departments in this. And it is the sixth episode. It is the episode that is Perfect Mom is on the mm. floor. And the union is out there waiting for a vote. And ironically, or maybe this is a tell, the person who stands up and urges them to go on strike was Shannon Doherty. And she, wow. which is which is ironic because, you know, she is always was a conservative and also more in the Duke Vincent thing. But she was caught up in the emotion of it. It's an emotional time. And, and, and that that was foisted on these this crew that could never make this you know, window, this 14 hour day, they were working so hard and not getting overtime. Um, you know, it wasn't, wasn't great. So they were susceptible for strike too, right? Right from the start. But the other person who then spoke was me. And I just told the crew, if you guys vote to go on strike, you might as well uh, strike the sets. They'll cancel us. Mm. Our rating, you know, we've gone on the two, we, we went down decidedly in our second episode Overnights from the third one wasn't, you know, was was okay, but down still, and you know there we um, were, and the the union, the the our our crew voted by one vote to stay in production, and mm -hmm. at that point we made a switch in line producer, a man named Paul Wagner joined the show, and we were in a different world. That's why, Larry, I always see the first six. You know, you, you talk of the first 12, but it, it it really is the first six. And then in the aggregate, the 12th. Right. And yeah. when they didn't cancel us at that point, they just decided whatever. They didn't really have anything back up. The Fox Network was also under extreme pressure because they finally had a really big hit on their hands, didn't they, Jessica, with The Simpsons? And... They were so happy and they went to the upfronts and they sold it up and down the board. It was the big seller. Everybody's talking about it. And they guaranteed the advertisers that the show would be on the air in the first week of September without asking the animators when they could have the material ready, which really was the first week of October. So we jumped on that date mm -hmm. and said, come on, guys, you hired me late. So, you know, you know, we got to. You know, give us a break. Don't ask us to come at July 4th. I mean, we can't have this ready in five weeks. And right. they gave us basically seven weeks. But not really, because they kept turning us down when we kept talking about the stories we wanted to do. Well, I think one of the most important things that happens in the green room, um, I'm going to show you a quick clip, is this person. My name's uh, Brandon Walsh. Brandon Walsh. Scotch or Irish? Both, actually. By way of Minnesota. Listen, what you did to those two Nimrods back there was great. Yeah, well, I just don't believe in winning through intimidation. Unless, of course, I'm doing the intimidating. Chuck, how important is Luke Perry to this uh, to the mix of this the first six? Well, he's mad, bad, and dangerous to know, and it's one. It's certainly my favorite line of the script, 
And um, that's a Lord Byron. That's when he compares himself to Lord Byron. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's what we got in the first two. And this is, you know, I had not seen the first two <coughs> since they aired, or either of them. Um, both of them, to me, represent something else than anything that's logical. Um, at this point, Larry, too, they didn't tell me that I had the, the right to be involved with actual post-production after it leaves the editor's room, after Mr. Spelling signs off. So I never knew what went on after that. You know, we did talk about the songs that we would, you know, put in and lock, but, you know, I didn't know that. So we'd go back more to the, just the writing part of it, try to get that done. But the, uh, Luke came to uh, my house and, and Karen's at my wife's house in Carthay Circle, which is, you know, kind of near the County Art Museum. And um, the, uh, the, we had the cast reading and we were waiting for Jason and Shannon to show up because they were having a publicity shot layout that wrote, went over. And, and I think Jenny was there too at uh, the shot. I'm not, I don't remember that so much. Anyway, they arrive and we start doing the reading. And that seems fine for me. I've never done a, a reading like this, certainly on a show that I'm writing this. Actors are there. They seem to be getting on. <clears throat> you know, they, um, Luke and Jason, those meetings, you know, there was nothing that stood out about anything. Everybody seemed happy to be there. The director was there. So was the director of the second episode who starts whispering in my ear, you have to rewrite this script. You have to rewrite this script now. <laughs> you know, now it wasn't, um, you know, Shakespeare, but, you know, shit, it was the script and, and it was different in some ways that we thought would, would, would come to us. You know, it, we thought it was a really, you know, he, that it surprised our writing staff how close it was to the tone of the pilot in some mm. way. Um, but it also had this intellectual quality. You know, David, the writer, went to Yale. And the next one, Amy, the writer, went to Harvard. And, you know, we're talking about um, Les Miserables. Right. You know, it yeah. could have it could have been a seminar at, at Columbia, Jessica. Right. I mean, that's so, right. So it really, and I, and I really do admire these two episodes because they only represent. By the way, I did not rewrite the script. I did like so. Board with that, <laughs> but uh, and and I actually liked it watching it now, and I liked every price tag watching it now, and my memory of every price tag and I shared this with Pete, is that I actually had to walk onto the stage shooting stuff in Brenda's bedroom and had to basically take, ask the director to step aside. I was allowed to do that per management rules with, with the DGA. And we would do a shot, what was set up. She would rehearse them. We would do one shot. I would turn to the I would turn to the DP and said, "Was there dirt in the camera? Did you get it right? Was it okay for you? Good. Moving on." And we took about six shots in about fourteen minutes, and we didn't go into double double overtime in the first day of the uh, second episode. So you can see it really was on my mind, yeah. and we really needed to not weak in that area uh, for the to get the respect of the 
spelling company, particularly Duke Vincent. Mm. Uh, Justina says, I guess every time I see him sitting there, meaning uh, Dylan, uh, uh-huh. that's, that's there was the hottest seat in TV. Um, do you think, I'm sorry, Chuck, do you think bringing Luke on was a critical moment in the decision there, right, of the first six? Oh, Have- yes. Oh, yes, it's absolutely. And after seeing the pilot, too, there was a void. I mean, and it isn't a void. You know, it's the way characters are written that you you go off of. But <laughs> we really needed somebody who was more mysterious, who was different. And, you know, we called him Dylan uh, for Matt Dylan, thinking of him on a motorcycle. And we had that element of it. The staff writer, story editor on the show, Jordan Booty, was the one who said, wouldn't it be cool if he lived by himself in a hotel? So, you know, that's what writer's rooms do. You kick around and someone does that. And that one we all liked. And that he wore sports coats and things like that. Uh, And that car. Yeah. yeah. And a port. Yes, it was. Absolutely. No, let let Steve Sanders have the... uh, Corvette. Corvette. This is the Porsche, the cooler car. And you're touching social issues, right? Right from the beginning. Uh, every dream has its price tag. You mentioned <clears throat> this whole thing about the shoplifting. Um, how are you kicking around these ideas for the first six, and particularly talking about, I guess, that episode and the the shoplifting deal? Well, it's interesting. You know, one of the other ones I saw coming to the Patreon is these are the stories that. We had, and Aaron Spelling had, on June 6th, uh, June 11th, 1990. And I think we had been a staff for about three days. And, you know, kicking off the different stuff. And some of them, hey, there's a story about a legacy key. There's a story about tutoring a a basketball black athlete, not the one with the busing in, but effectively Deshaun. Um, there's a Brenda Kelly Brandon triangle for somehow. Um, we decide we really want to use dreams. Uh, I don't know what that means, Larry. I see that. I don't know how there could have been that triangle, yeah. but who are you really friends with? You know, that kind of thing, I guess. Oh, yeah. Oh, I see. I see. <laughs> Loyalty. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess. I, you know, it's it, conditioned to be played out, it says. We knew that we wanted to do dreams because we wanted to do some stylistic kind of things at that point. We wanted to fit in more with what was going on with Parker Lewis and the <laughs> other of the Fox promotion oh, world. Yeah. We've got one about a maid's daughter coming to school, auditions in the school play, Steve's mother, an actress in need of work, uh, and and a, and a teach and, and an affair with a teacher from a character called Holly Hunter. And I have no idea if, what that means, to tell you the <laughs> truth. I think we were after some character that would like be, you know, that. Or maybe that was what we called Andrea. That's what we must have called Andrea. Because she was like, yeah. Whoever was writing this down didn't know her name. Uh, excuse me, that's what it is. Um, Alicia wanted to know about Tiffany, the character of Tiffany. Uh, she wanted to know if you guys had ever thought about keeping her on. The, the shoplifter herself, was she someone that you thought would be in the cast at some point? I really enjoyed her and the conversations I had with her. Um, if you go back, we'll go to her IMDb page, you see she was really a working actress in the 90s. And one of her big um, roles, I don't know if you 
realize this, Jessica she, and, and Larry. She was one of the three actresses who played Amy Fisher in oh, the Joey Buttafuoco story. Well, my, my brother scored that. She was the NBC version. She was the yeah. last one. That's my brother's. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And she was really good. And, she was great you know, in that. I have to yeah, say, I'm from the same hometown as her, as Amy Fisher. She's from <laughs> our hometown. Well, they have that. Yeah. Merrick Long Island. Merrick Long Island. Represent. Uh, but the, but yeah. the, yeah. And, you know, we just didn't have any money to bring anybody back for anything. And yes, sure, we would have liked to. But by, she had other she had other obligations. She was moving in a different galaxy. I'm glad she came in and did the show. Um, and you said before that they, they, the the network had a thought about maybe uh, the the adult stories. I thought Jim and Cindy are great in the show, but you did not push the adult stories too much. There is an episode we'll cover down the line where you did go down that road, the seventeen year itch. Um, but so, how are you trying to fit them in uh, every week? I guess is the question. Well, if it's a Walsh family series, then there's conflicts between um, child and parent. Okay. And looking at these episodes, um, it, it's interesting that, <clears throat> you know, the arc of Brenda, because in these first six, and she even makes a little fun of it in herself in one of the scripts, you know, that she can't believe how shallow she's become. Because she's caring so much about the clothes and who's there and the party and this. And she hasn't done Teen Line yet. Hasn't done much, you know, outside of, sure. of that. And between that and going to Isn't It Romantic, those two changed her character. But at this point, you know, she's really susceptible to peer pressure. And, and I feel that, you know, again, we were talking a little bit about with Cindy you know, being very unhappy to be in smoggy L.A., you know, and uh, and Amy Spees and myself, we both are from Los Angeles. Amy was a friend of mine from high school, so I wanted someone also like that. And, and But Amy had never done an episode of television. I realized, you know, I was really a movie of the week guy, and, not, and back then my pilots weren't getting made. So I, Larry, they give me this show – I've got five hours of credit. That's all I got. That's all I've ever seen. Is is that as a writer for five hours? That's all I've two staff yeah. jobs in five hours. So I really was not prepared to take over a show. I didn't understand yeah. what the function is, is what a showrunner was. And I figured the only reason I was there was because I was a writer. And I didn't need to know about the production stuff because to stay there would have to be the would be through the writing as it were and so one-on-one -on -one was was mine to write during this period of time i was gonna say pete you you referenced the adults and stuff and i have to i i need to know the backstory on hartley house because i'm obsessed with that show um i don't know what it was I don't know who came up with it, and I don't know why there isn't someone is making a web series called Hartley House. Hartley House, right? Yes. How does not exist? Yeah, yeah. what a great spinoff! Yeah, it's all yes. Darren, it's all Darren Star. You're friends of him, you know. You know him. Call him up. Tell him, let Let's do it. Let's, yeah. But I agree, it's very cute, and I actually did even talk to somebody about why don't we do that. Um, I idea. thought it was a cute idea. I, I mean, it was just who knows what. I mean, it was the old kind of 
you yeah. know, eight is enough or you know, reading a bunch. Yeah. Out of that. Well, Chuck, we uh, we told we when we promoted the show, you said you were going to tell a story that you've never told before until today, right? And we talked before we came on air, and you told me the story. Are you ready to share the story that you've never shared before? Remind me which we had so many. I was telling you that uh, I never somebody, somebody that had to be removed from set. Ah, oh, yeah. So early on, you know, we're we just had the vote. And um, Paul Wagner is we're transitioning into the show. He's doing his first one. Jeffrey White's cleaning up. Paul walks on the set and notices that a guy is sleeping in his chair at 11 o'clock in the morning and asks a question or two. And we escorted the productions company's drug dealer out of the building. Because I don't have a clue what the, was it. What was he the camera department? Was he a grip? Was it didn't matter? He was there to cause mischief, and wow. he got busted. And that's what we did uh, in episode seven. Who was he causing mischief? Not that uncommon. Not that uncommon in sense. Mm-hmm. Certainly, yeah. But be. but you know, it was this was a dangerous because they were working such ridiculous long hours. Quite frankly. Mm. <laughs> but this would include they could have used some speed, you know. But you know, they, they would always have the doctor who would come over sometimes, Chuck, you know, like and give them the vitamin C shot <laughs> keep them working. We'd have that too. The doctor right. field group would come over. Um, okay. This this Sherry wants to know, do you remember anything about standards and practices having to say anything about Brandon and Cheryl's sex scene in the first time? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't. It went very smoothly. It was there was no friction in that episode at all. Uh, which, once we got these ordered, and um, you know, ask me how the mix up in the order, uh, Sherry, uh, when the next time we speak, and I can tell you a different story that we shouldn't get into right now. But yeah. it, you know, there was a definitely, um, you know, we had, there were episodes we were fighting over back and forth. These were not one of. Uh, I think this is in higher education, Chuck. How much trouble did this cause? Yeah. So we're in a room writing stories, and somebody, I, I mean, I don't know if it's on this sheet of paper or the other sheet of paper. If you're listening and driving, it's, it was Brenda in blonde hair, and that's in higher education, I think, right? Yeah. That's it. And not knowing that. Shannon kind of defined her whole being as defined by I'm the brunette. I'm the brunette in Hollywood, not the blonde. So she didn't like it to begin with. And then we didn't have much money. So it was a pretty, I mean, I like the people who worked in the show early on, but it was an intentionally shitty wig because we were making fun. We were having a good time, but um, she was not a happy gal. And she let the producers, um, the one of the producers who was not, uh, he and I were not that much in harmony, um, begin to criticize the idea that we would make our star wear such a crummy little wig. And the people from propaganda stood up and pushed back. And uh, that, and I always will be very appreciative that they that they did. 
But, um, you know, I didn't realize it was that I was tapping into something that was very, that made, you know, star of the show very unhappy. And obviously we would have, could have come up with something different if that was the case. Right. All right, let's go into one-on-one. This is one of the things that we really wanted to talk about. Uh, I want to show somebody that we talked to this week. This was pretty fun. Uh, we actually talked to Joshua Carton, who's the the uh, driving instructor, <laughs> which is awesome. So he had a couple of fun things to say. Let's use this one first. Do you like Peter? Peter? Pete, but it doesn't matter. I'm good with Peter, too. Um. <laughs> Paul, no. Um, <laughs> the, um, I was in tears uh, when that thing happened on the basketball court and those guys mm. reconciled. Now, you know, what did they say about Oscar Levant? He could cry at the opening of a supermarket. But I was really touched. And I had seen the other, um, seen an episode um, to prepare for this you sent me, the one in which... Um, Mr. Vargas and Miss uh, Leishan talked about what Charles had done and the things he took on, um, which at the time, you know, for a lot of us were like, well, of course, but the more I heard, I understood what he had really done and what he, it meant to people mm. uh, to, to include the, what were shouldn't be issues, but still are. And um, I found myself tearing up on the basketball scene. And we'll, we'll, we have some clips from talking about the driving. Um, but why don't we talk about the Chuck? This is the first episode that you wrote for the series. Um, right, right. So tell me what you, where you were coming with, with the, the basketball well, scene. Yeah. As we've talked before and to know, and Jessica, you certainly maybe have heard conversations about it. Certainly Entertainment Weekly would point it out to us that this was an all-white cast. And at this point, we were being pummeled by being compared to other shows coming out. All High particularly was almost a celebration of diversity. And, you know, we were just, you know, not, it was just typical spell and this, so back. So I needed to do something like that. This is a real Beverly, the basketball story is a Beverly Hills story. The first athletes <clears throat> who were bust into Beverly Hills in 1969 and 1970, first kids, I should say, mostly from Baldwin Hills and Inglewood, were all athletes and, um, and participated. And, and certainly by the time I graduated college four years later, they were, Beverly Hills was a sports powerhouse in all the fun, you know. Um, so I wanted to uh, put it in there that, um, you know, to, to, to get something about it and this and try to deal with race relations knowing that our star, Brandon, uh, really hadn't had that much interaction with black people being from Minnesota um, back then. I know this because I spent my freshman year at, at University of Wisconsin. Mm. And uh, the, the states are not that dissimilar in that regard. And uh, so I thought that looking back on it, that, you know, would he be so confrontational in his, you know, approach to it, uh, in, in, in going for the story. But, you know, that's what, in that point, you know, Jay looking at it and being directed, that's what seemed what was wanted, you know, the passion that is, I mean, I read you the 
network nodes. So it was all, let's take it up, take it up, and not make it a little more subtle. Mm. I was wondering, you- Chuck, I was wondering about the, the scenes with Brandon and Steve in that, because Steve really spews some hateful things. I mean, everything from talking about, oh, well, I root for the Celtics, and which which is, co- anyone who knows basketball knows what that's code for, you know. And, it, was and it was a code. Dog whistle. It was a code. It was a dog whistle. I was not overt. I was not overt, and I thought it was pretty. I admire how Ian did it. Because no. Ian did not want to say, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> Ian is Steve, that Steve did not want to come off as that socially unacceptable, blatantly racist person. So it was the idea being what, but I, I'm interested in Larry's point of view on this because I also think a lot of it was disappointment. You know, Larry knows, he's, he knows a lot of young athletes in this city. He helped them there. And they would go to this high school called Harvard-Westlake, which was a regional high school. And both in, you know, a lot of sports, they brought in great athletes to be there. And the kids who always wanted to play and saw that as their dream weren't eligible anymore. So it wasn't a completely meritless um, position, at least emotionally. It may not be. Yeah. Yeah, emotionally, you know, Brandon never got a chance to kind of challenge Steve on that. I mean, he kind of takes his anger out on, on Jim. I have to tell you, the uh, the Brandon-Jim scene, I was getting – this sounds crazy, Chuck, but, I, you know, I, I, I got a chance to work with Jim Backus, who played uh, James Dean's father in Rebel Without a Cause. And this reminded me a lot of the scene in Rebel Without a Cause with Jim, you know, come on, Jimbo. And, you know, not your thing, Dad. Not, and it was just, it brand, I thought Jason did a magnificent job there. And it really, that scene really worked like powerhouse, I thought. On the other thing with Ian, I was a little bit worried. I mean, in today's world, they're going, oh, my God. I mean, I hope they, they resolve this. He just seems like a, you know, a totally entitled white privileged, you know, you know racist. Um, but, you know, again, we were in 1990. It's just a, a different world. It sure was. Willie Horton was two years old at that point, and, and in one sense, and also um, the you know the idea that I it, it's hard to believe, and and it's almost with apologies. Steve's character could have been sacrificed to the lambs at that point. Absolutely, this absolutely. This was Brandon and Brenda's TV show. This yep. was the Walsh family TV show, and that's what you're seeing for six episodes. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, the other thing I noticed in watching it, it's interesting. You got two nerds. You got the battle of the nerds, and like only one nerd can survive because Brian <laughs> Brian made his bones by having the other guy die. He became a man. <laughs> really kind of classic, you know. Two nerds. Somebody just said uh, Tico Wells is unbelievable in this episode. I'm going to show yeah. you guys the scene of Tico Wells and Brandon in the library. What are you doing here? I don't have to justify myself to you. Yeah, hey, just ask the simple question. No, it's not simple at all. What you're really asking is, how come a dumb black jock who can't read and who... Hey, um... I never said that, James. Right. He just would answer my questions about the Applied Learning Opportunity Program. How the hell should I know about the learning program? I'm not a part of it. Quiet, you won't recruit it here to play basketball? That's right. But you don't live in the district, do you? Caught me red-handed. I just want to know how you got permission to go to school in the district. I don't need permission. My father has worked for the Beverly Hills City Library for 15 years, and that gives me as much right to be here as anyone. Hold it down, please. Including you. 
Oh, the reason the ALOP office didn't have your records is because you're not part of their program? I already told you. I'm here because my father earned a right for me to be here. Not because I was recruited or because I want to be. You know what you're saying. Hey. Then why don't you try saying nothing? I was getting by fine in Inglewood when my parents decided it was time to upgrade my education. Four weeks into the semester, making me have to play catch-up from the get-go. Sounds like what happened to me. Yeah, right. That's why your old man tried to suck up to the coat. Hey, that's not what went down at all. Yeah, I love it. You rich white boys, you get the world handed to you, no strings attached, and you honestly think that's how it is for everyone. Excuse me, I don't know whose bank account you've been looking at, but I am not rich. Yeah, but you're white. And that's why your first impulse was to think, hey, he's got to be dumb or a rap singer or, or in a gang or smoking crack or whatever stereotype fits your fears. But that's your problem. That's not my problem. So what if I need a little extra help adjusting to life at the almighty West Beverly High School? So what if I use my God-given talent to get me into the college of my choice? I ain't got nothing to hide, got nothing to be ashamed of, and nothing more to say to you. Whew. Hey, I'm drunk. Yeah, that's drunk. <laughs> never mind. Yeah. Now, I have a Tico Wells story that I have never shared, I don't think. And uh, so this this would fall into it. Can I tell my Tico Wells story? Yeah, please. Yeah. So I needed to know if the talented young actor who had just come in can really play basketball or any of the other ones. And so we held the audition in my backyard where I had a basketball hoop that wasn't that different than what they had at the Walsh's. So mine was really regulation height, and that was short to make them all look a little better. <laughs> and um, and also, I had a bigger area of space to play. Um, you didn't know me then, Larry. I played basketball three days a week, uh, usually about 5, 6 o'clock at night. And then we had the Saturday morning game, all on Beverly Hills Elementary School playgrounds that we'd have to jump over fences to get into. And... Um, and I realized my last game I played on a Saturday morning after I had started my first week on 902-0, that that would be the last basketball game I'd be playing for a while. Yeah. And it was. And um, the fact is, is that I then, uh, but we wanted, I wanted someone who knew how to play, but I was warmed up. I knew how to play. And so Tico and I went one-on-one -on -one <laughs> in my backyard. And I got plus one on him. <laughs> and he effing believe it. <laughs> you know, Hebrew, you know, I, I felt like somebody off the playground at CCNY or something, you know, but I, I made the shots and uh, it yeah. was an hour, I remember. And had these series been canceled in the first six, that would have been my highlight. That would have been <laughs> my highlight reel right there. Miriam, who's on our Patreon, wanted to know, did the producers ever consider casting any black actors or actresses as series regulars? Great question, Miriam. Let's uh, take a deep dive into Ashes to Ashes sometime. And that's from the second year, um, which we had, you know, um, Vivica Fox and uh, yeah. um, uh, uh, Tina Lifford and a, you know, real interesting cast. And um, that was the intention was was that we could spin this off. Mm. Uh, and the marketplace wasn't really ready for that. So, and, and the audience, 902-0, was not ready for it, as our ratings would always attest. Um, Michelle wants to know the other storyline in this thing. Uh, for Charles, why did you decide to have Brenda be a bad driver? <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, because uh, we needed some humor. Yeah. And, um, you know, and the idea being is that when I approached, told Shannon, this is where I thought I'd be going with her in this, <clears throat> she really liked it because she was challenged as a driver too. But her challenge was not to go 80 miles an hour on the freeway. But nonetheless, so she had a unique relationship with automobiles. And, um, you know, that idea that, you know, you can just, you know, move to L.A. and not have to drive you know, or live in a urban place back east or in the Midwest and not really need to have a car and not even care about having a car and uh, come to L.A. And how can you live without a car? So, Who thought of naming the car Walter Mondale? Yeah, please. This is a big question. I guess it's explained in the episode. Yeah. Yeah, the Democrat. You know, hello. <laughs> Who else would? <laughs> well, am I going to call it Hubert Humphrey? No. It was, <laughs> you know, no one would know what I was talking about. I don't know, but like Rupert owns Fox and he's not exactly, uh, you right. know. I don't think he was donating to the Mo Mondale's campaign. <laughs> you know, when we worked at Fox, though, it did not feel like a conservative place. It was the exact opposite. It was the anti-establishment network. I mean. You know, we felt yeah, like well, you know, we were the outsiders, and we never thought about the politics of it at all. It never came up. Yeah, yeah they weren't calling it Proud Boys then, but it was, you know, kind of disaffected young guys who weren't as extreme, obviously. People who were starting to play games and on computers. And the reason is, I think you might know this, Jessica, it's because they're the easiest to peel off. They were the easiest demographic to peel off from the network. Mm. Because they already had come off to follow wrestling <laughs> and other stuff. And you got to understand with Fox, they were doing some really hip, as we said, hip, it's Gary Shandling's show and In Living Color. They, they, they didn't do Gary Not You know, it's the Gary Shandling show, not the late night show, his first show. Yeah, yeah that was on um, Showtime. That was on Showtime. No, you're, you're thinking of Larry Sanders. Uh Larry. Larry Sanders was oh, on HBO. Yeah. This oh, is, okay. It's, it's Gary Sanders. Yeah. With Fox. All right. Let's see what Josh Carton had to say about driving. I knew, and even watching it now, really nothing about working in front of a camera to the point that when we started the filming, I had the first line. It was very quiet. So I just started. And somebody <laughs> said, Excuse me, the AD says action. And I, I was mortified. I, um, I began <laughs> in a shame attack. Uh, was Brad Gross your AD? Do you remember? No, he would that not. Was the other one, yeah, yeah. Stringer. Okay. Well, I mean, he, he wasn't being cruel or anything. He was just taking care of business. But you know, if you're nervous uh, to not even know who's supposed to tell you to talk, was uh, nerve wracking. Well, we all were in a, a in those early episodes. I always called them "Learn While You Earn." Uh, <laughs> believe me, most of the crew didn't know what they were doing, and certainly the showrunner didn't had to learn um, on the spot. Um, Chuck, how did you think of Joshua for this part? <laughs> Where did it come from your brain? It's got to be Joshua. Well, I I thought of him for many reasons, but one was because. You know, he would be, most of the driving teachers had other, instructors had other jobs. They were coaches, sometimes um, Chuck Close was a, was a history teacher. There were other people who did it. And my hope was that I would, 
Joshua would be in this role. He would be very funny, which he was. Yeah. <laughs> and it would be recognized by my production company. And I could bring him back numerous times as the whenever a teacher was kind of necessary. Mm -hmm. um, some things get heard, and that was one that I didn't get to yeah. do. Fortunately. Well, at the time I was teaching in the School of Theater at USC, so it was all doable. Um, but I also think if you wrote it with me in mind, and I see this looking at it now, I mean, a lot of people, I think, are uncomfortable looking at themselves. Um, the first time I ever saw myself in dailies, I knew I was about to enter and the next thing I knew, I was under the seat, under the chair in horror. I mean, really, uh, a blackout moment. So I think you probably wrote it with certain understandings of my eccentric, well, others say that, I mean, um, behavior and vocal patterns and such. And... Um, I realized looking at it that I, I was aware that I was trying to be the me that you had written it for, which was an interesting and somewhat, somewhat successful, but somewhat not. Um, I think it was. I, mean, I wrote it for the guy with the bow tie. Yes, and I had the bow ties that I brought my own costuming. I definitely, that was my bow tie. Um, and here's what he said about working with Shannon. You know, we really were talking also that, you know, you're, you're in the episode one-on-one -on -one, and you're teaching Brenda how to drive. And then that camera pulls back and you realize you're in this huge empty parking lot, you know, and it's a, it's a joke payoff. And I was pointing out to Peter in this one that whenever there was humor and Brenda's story was pretty much humorous from start to finish. Right. I didn't go to any punchlines. It was all in the behavior and delivery. And so you were, you know, got a lot of laughs of us watching it today. Yes. And, um, right. But I didn't earn them. The, 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 uh, cut did. I will say you gave me one, which, and, uh, which was, um, and if you find a teacher, no, you're as only as good a driver as the teacher. And I'm sure you'll find somebody who has a death wish. And, um, <laughs> yes. and she went right yeah. over Brenda's head, right over her head. Like, yeah. She didn't see yeah. that. She didn't even react to it, you know. Um, <laughs> Excuse me. Do you have specific memories about shooting this, these, those scenes with Shannon and, and being in that world at that time? After watching oh, it? Yes. Oh, yes. I didn't under, I mean, I, I understood something. I understood enough about acting, but I didn't really know about the camera. And so I would see everybody crowded around the monitor. And um, I had known Danny Addius younger. Um, so, but I didn't understand what was interesting about her. But she fills with these things that happen in her face. Um, mm. and, but live, I, I wasn't understanding yet what the television and the camera and the frame and um, where she was alive. Really, really great interview. And that's going to be in full on Patreon. He also, Chuck, was Brenda's 
or Shannon's language instructor to learn the accent for when she went to Paris in uh, season three, so or two. Gave that one for the patrons, right? Yeah. yeah, for Patreon. Yeah, we call this an FOC, <laughs> friend of Chuck's. Yeah, <laughs> they're up, they're they're F-O-C. through it, you know. We and 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 you know that they got uh, friends of LM too, you know. That when you have friends, <laughs> this is what they do. Uh, a lot of the mothers from the Center for Early Education played the nurses and the teachers <laughs> and things like that, that's for sure. Uh, Alicia was asking about higher education. She asks about the line where Brenda says, I like your butt. I mean, bike. Was that in the script? And who do you have any thoughts on who would come up with that? I'm sure it was in the script. Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, in higher education. Um, not I think it there, you know, there was a lot of uh writing on that. It would either I'd probably be Jordan Booty, probably be the original writer, the credited writer. If not, it would have been Karen. That's appropriate. Yeah. That she, was, <laughs> she, was, she was involved with this rewrite as was I a little bit. Can yeah. I ask another question about one-on-one? Just to go back to this the storyline, oh, sure. uh, race storyline. I'm curious what um, Aaron Spelling and what the team. What was the reaction after that episode? Because um, it, it's such a compelling episode. It's important. Even just watching that scene, Pete, that you just replayed. He says so many important things that were relevant then. They're sadly still relevant, and those conversations, like Lord knows, there's there's still going to be some white guy questioning someone and saying, "Hey, do you belong here?" And and mm. you know, it was important that you did that. But I'm curious, after that episode was in, and the team and the network and Spelling and and Duke saw it, did they think, "Okay, we need to do more of this," or we or did they say, okay, you did that one episode, now let's move on? Mm, good question. The only time they, at the point that um, they said, why don't you stop with the social drama after encouraging me and encouraging me and encouraging us to do the problems and the dramas and do that. The, when, when they finally stopped doing that and said, lighten up, we did Fame is Where You Find It. And Brenda's Laverne and that we went we went a completely lightened up direction. This is what they this is what they bought. This is what they figured Aaron could deliver. And I feel that in this one, I think now what happened was that um, in terms of the broadcast airing order, they jumped over this episode to air first time first because more marketable, more provocative. You know, more, 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 sal- more commercial, more saleable in that regard. You know, sex, you know, and with a character and all of that. And there were also some dramatic scenes in the promo, I'm sure. And uh, so ours was the next one. And I think it was after this one aired that there was the, and it may have been after first time, but I think it was this one because, you know, as again, the green room and price tag were seen as the experimental ones in some ways, you know, looking at it at the time and, um, and that the show was finding its footage and first time and one-on-one, the one thing that you can say about both of them is that they are constructed hours of television and that the act breaks move forward at this. It was, they were put together and I think they, 
you know, and, and, and this one too had that. But what happened was, is they had the meeting and Diller walks in and he says, yes, I'm happy with the episodes I'm seeing. But does it belong on our air? Our brand? Is this, does it belong that? But they didn't really have the resources to replace us. Mm. So at this point, when we do the first six, the 17-year itch, the story that really made it clear that we were not going to be telling adult stories anymore when uh, to, to drive action, which was Cindy's uh, almost having an affair. We right. put that one away. Um, from episode 8 to 14, which is gentle art of listening, isn't it romantic, BYOB, one boy and a baby, slumber party, East Side Story, and Palm Springs weekend, they left us alone. Dan Mc, nobody, the show wasn't, you know, what was it going to be? The ratings weren't that good. The order was there. We were making shows that were okay. And that was a real fun time to make the show. Mm. You know, eight to 14. You know, McDermott and I, no, nobody really watched them. Nobody was on our head. We just made them and put them in. And so, but the six, first six are different, you know, yeah. and that we got through it is uh, kind of a miracle. Val wants to know where did the idea of Mr. Denzel's character and his outdated leisure suits come from? That's from, and that's another higher education one. Okay, well, here's the higher education. Higher education came from the suits are from my my high school history teacher named Salvatore Acapeni, <laughs> and the, <laughs> the character who said that I I'm the only class you're going to remember was a college instructor named Larry Rosen. Felt in Wisconsin, based who did that curve, the 10% A, 10% F, and 80% C, no pass, not pass. So he was there to fight great inflation in 1970. But th this is my high school teacher. And indeed, tests were stolen for a final in history. And, and all my friends were in the class. And all my friends had the test. Um, and, uh, I, I didn't want to see it <laughs> and neither did my study partner, David Lewis, you know, David, right? Uh, Hamble, Hamble, the Hamburger Hamlet, Hamburger Hamlet, Hamburger Hamlet, Hamburger Hamlet my, one of my wonderful guy, David, um, the lifelong friends. And we <clears throat> took history seriously and we liked the fact that our brains still worked and we could memorize stuff and, uh, we didn't want to do it that way. And. The, the funny part is, of that real story, is that the guy who stole it didn't want to be too obvious. So he made a couple of intentional errors. And one of the other guys, Larry, who you had uh, lunch with in London, that guy, you remember when I visited I do, that I guy, do, the conductor, yeah. Very, the, the, the very famous and very nice life. He didn't, you know, just wrote them all the right ones. And he didn't take any off. He was that guy oh. who, who threw the curve up. And mm -hmm. David and I, we knew our stuff. So maybe I missed one or two. He missed one or two. And the guy who did the intentional one, there were so many that had it that he was out of the loop. And he got a B plus and not an A. And he only got a B in the class. So that's you know cheaters never prosper. That's the real, that's where the story came from, guys. You're so Brandon, Chuck. Yeah, 
<laughs> Definitely. Listen, well, you know, um, it's an interesting thing, and we, let's go back to one-on-one. Mm. We, I had, I didn't know Jason well enough to say that. I didn't want to be that presumptuous. That happened in the second season, and then he realized when he was doing political things, he didn't have to always be so confrontational because I wasn't. Mm. Not yeah, listen, I mean, one of my favorite scenes in uh, that episode is our buddy Dylan here. Brandon, Earth to Walsh. What is wrong with you? Jacob Denzel, American History. Ah, yes, had him last year. You did? Yeah, some wardrobe, huh? Some teacher. All he cares about is his holy curve. Yeah, oh, well, he's retiring this year. He is? Mm-hmm. He just wants to keep it quiet, though. Doesn't want everybody making a big deal. <laughs> Tell you what, if Denzel announced his retirement, it wouldn't be a big deal. It'd be a national holiday. I learned a lot from him personally. All I'm learning is how to cheat. Watch out, man. You're flirting with bad karma. Hey, what kind of marks did you get? Does it matter? Yeah. Be careful. Great use of Dylan here, right? I mean, isn't he the coolest, Jessica? Oh my Tell God. me about your work with Dylan I McKay. Love him so- so much for I mean there's just every every camera angle on him is perfect every close up his hair like I just the fact that he loves education there's nothing hotter than a guy driving a Porsche in high school who's cool who like knows poetry <laughs> Lord Byron who yeah he likes history class guess what he's not gonna cheat because he loves education he's smart and hot I mean dream Right, which is why I love Claire, by the way, because what was it? Sex, uh, sex, rock, and per, and uh, really decent literature, right? That's exactly. Um, right. The one thing I, I I did when that notion was planted, I wonder, Larry and Jessica, did you ever see or remember the movie Getting Straight with Elliot Gould sure. sure. and in the Revolution? Right, with Candace Bergen. Yeah. Oh no, Getting Straight was Dustin Hoffman getting out of jail. No. What was it? What was it? Um, what was the one where he? You're you're right. What was the one where he played the the, the professor? It was filmed in Laney College against the Revolution. Anyway, his character oh. was a, he his character was a professor, and he would go to bed with this beautiful black woman, which in 1970 you just pretty much hadn't seen. And what they did is they talked literature the whole time they were having sex. <laughs> made it, it made it they cut it from the movie but it made an impression on charles <laughs> i love it um well the other episode here to talk about would be perfect mom and i don't really want to go too far into that episode because i feel like we could deep dive but i think other people deserve that that shot to talk about that uh but i will want to ask you chuck about um jenny's performance in that episode and just how wonderful she is and how she came to life and how it broke the tradition sort of of a Walsh storyline. Oh, absolutely. And, and there was um, a lot of um, contention because of it, um, quite frankly, um, because it, it, you know, I mean, Darren wrote it, Darren. And, and, you know, at this point, when you watch Jenny in the early episodes and how she was playing and the, the looks and the things she was doing. To think that she would have that reservoir of drama 
was not displayed, at least in what we had seen up to that point. Same with, with, with if you think about what, what Darren did for Ian Sanders in Slumber Party. <clears throat> they had never been challenged that way to act like that in this. And I remember that um, everybody was really thrilled with it. I think um, Shannon Lesso. Shannon, what? I'm sorry, Larry. Shannon Lesso. She mm -hmm. she saw this as a little bit of an infringement on that on that dyad that we had, had made, and um, but but you know what? It was it, nonetheless. You don't know that. You look at this. She she's up there. She's um, I'm doing it, and she and she you. But you do see in 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 Perfect Mom a lot of rage to Cindy. And maybe when we get Carol Potter on sometime, that we should talk about that. Yeah, I, mean, I thought I thought Carol Potter was fascinating in the first six oh. in a way that I didn't remember. And after the seventeen-year age, we weren't allowed to have her be like that anymore. She I do. love when she yells at Jim, take me off speakerphone. <laughs> Great moment. Well, also, there's a, there's a bit where they can't get the phone to work, right? That there's 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 a, always an issue when she's on the phone. It's like it hangs up on her automatically, which nobody in this world would ever know what a, how to deal with a landline like that, you know? Um, listen, I, I'm sure 9021OMG, I'm sure Jenny and uh, Tori will cover Perfect Mom, and I can't wait to hear that episode. I'm happy to shout them out and talk about that because, uh, you know, and I hope that they get Anne on and I hope that they really dive into it because it's really some fantastic work out of Jenny and Anne and the whole the whole cast there. Um, the one yeah. thing I can say that they will not add to the story <laughs> is that, um, you know, one of the reasons, Anne Gillespie looked great and she did a terrific audition. But the reason that I was partial is because she had done an NYPD directed by Greg Hoblin. And that was the top of the television food chain at that point. Oh. Hoblet was Bochco's number one director at, at, at that element. And um, only later, many years later, did I find out that he was her brother-in-law. Oh, wow. What a twist. But, yeah. You know, but I was so happy that someone with a legitimate credit actually walked through the door. Because <laughs> we didn't have that many of that. That's for sure. Well, I think we wrap these these six. Jessica, it's always wonderful having you here with us. Um, Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Let me tell you about next week. Next week, we're going into season four. And we're talking about Mr. Walsh Goes to Washington, the season ender of that. Um, I am really excited to, to cover that. Uh, you guys, there's a lot to go over in that particular episode, but guess who's joining us next week? Ariel Hunter, Carrie Warher <laughs> joining us. So that should be fun because there's that whole thing with David, uh, Donna, and Ariel. So that's going to be a blast. She will be with us next week. Uh, I just want to let everybody know that you can always get us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Beverly Hills 90210 show. There's a lot of really great stuff going on there. And uh, make sure you check out Melanie's Hunts if you haven't already. I don't know where that image is. It's gone. So that's that. Sorry, Melanie. There it is. Okay. Make sure you check that out from December 17th to the 21st. 
And you can always find Beverly Hills 90210 on Pluto Television, right, Larry? We had a lot of fun well, tuning along with them. Yeah. What, yeah, Pluto Television. What about uh, the Christmas party, Pete? Tell That's right. Okay. Yes, I'm not. I'm not. All the things you have to hawk and park here. Christmas party is going to be a blast. On the 23rd, we're going to cover a whole bunch of episodes. We're still putting it together. I'm not ready to announce who's going to be on there just yet. Uh, <laughs> we're working on getting that uh, uh, situated. Yes. Well, and we're going to yeah, have. A we did a lot of Christmas episodes. We did six of them. So why not? Yes. Uh, Lisa says, what about my Patreon question? I missed it, Lisa. I didn't see it this week. I'm so sorry. Um, all right. This is it. This was great. Uh, we will be back next week and uh, where we cover Mr. Walsh goes to Washington. And it's on a Tuesday. So, that's right. Tuesday, December 15th. We're going to be here instead of Wednesday because Chuck has uh, has something going on. So, yes. Oh, let's do it, Jessica. Oh, He's Larry. Going caroling. Oh, Hanukkah. Oh, Hanukkah. <laughs> it's our annual virtual Hanukkah party. Uh, Larry comes uh, to our real party, and this is what oh, I missed the real party. So sad. I missed with, the uh, a lot of friends and. Uh, Bingo. So I'm sorry we had to go on Tuesday, but uh appreciate the whole support with everybody. All right. Son All right. Here. Thank See you. Guys. Thank you very much. Great Thank week. You, Thank you, Jessica. Right. Bye bye, Chuck. Later, guys. Bye-bye. Bye, -bye. bye guys.